2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Erica Commissar. She's author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Erica is a licensed uh, certified social worker, clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and parent guidance expert who has been in private practice in New York City for the last 25 years. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Erica. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Well, okay. This is an important book, obviously, uh, and I know so many young women who struggle with all the, or many of the issues that you are that you talk about in your book. Um, I guess what you're saying is that it's really critical, it's really important, both for a mother's emotional and physical presence, to have a mother emotionally and physically presence in the first three years of her child's life. Um and, and I guess maybe, especially today, and then I'm going to stop talking, let you talk, obviously, but, uh, there's a lot of conflict when it comes to that. The maternity leave isn't long enough. I don't know what they get now, three months maternity leave. Uh, so we're not set up for that. And I think also f- physically and psychologically, moms feel guilty about not going back to work. But you're saying, hey, it's really important to be there with that baby and that toddler so that they later on will be healthy, functioning young people and adults.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's a really important dialogue. I mean, you bring up a good point that this is a hard discussion to have. It's politically incorrect. It's difficult. It causes a lot of people to feel pain and guilt. And it's a really difficult uh, conversation that we have to have as a society to talk about what's really best for our children and for the mothers of those children.
2: Well, uh yeah, Very important. And it's not just I mean, you're saying it's not just sort of it's not a belief system. It's not just an attitude. But you're saying there are actually facts, scientific facts that and research that goes to show that if a mother spends at least three years uh, mm-hmm. with her baby. Uh, not racing and running and, you know, in, get, in, and, and being, I guess, what would you call the word, uh, sort of, uh, not there, not present is what you're saying. Um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, that the, yeah, the impact is really, really detrimental, but, it, but it's, but there's research that proves, that goes to show this.
3: There is. Um, You know, basically what I was seeing is that society as a whole had devalued mothering. And as a result, we were failing our children. That, That I was seeing in my practice, my parent guidance practice, this epidemic level of emotionally troubled children with serious symptoms, being diagnosed at an early age and medicated at an early age with things like ADHD and behavioral problems and social disorders and increased aggression. And I was seeing it at such an increase in my practice that it really worried me. And I started looking at the, the research, which just backed up what I believe, which is that it was connected to the absence of mothers and what mothers do for babies. So to answer your question, mothers provide babies with these critical functions, um, biological functions. So when I say that mothers are important to babies not just from a physical and emotional level, but also from a biological level, uh, which is what the research really backs up, um, that mothers do a couple of things. They protect babies from stress, which then lays the foundation for that baby for life to be resilient to stress to be able to cope with stress going forward to be able to deal with adversity in life. They also, mothers also do this other thing called emotional regulation, which is every time a baby cries, a mother um, attends to that baby's uh, distress and soothes and comforts that baby, In doing so is regulating their emotions. That is then internalized after that three-year period so the baby can do it for themselves. But within that three-year period of brain development, babies can't soothe themselves to the degree that they need the mother there.
2: I have a perfect example of what you're saying. And of course, as a new grandmother, I have a one-year-old grandson and I, and I sort of watched what just as you're describing this get played out, uh, this weekend as they were visiting me. And I watched my daughter-in-law. Oh, she, she is, she has a master's degree. She has a profession, but she's chosen to stay home with, with her, her, her son, uh, for this. And he really reflects what you're saying. They wake up in the morning. He sits down. He has breakfast for, you know, h- half an hour, mm-hmm. calmly eating his breakfast. Uh, not, she's not racing out the door trying to get him fed and get him somewhere else or, mm-hmm. and it, it it's, he's a very calm baby of curious, all those things that you're talking about. I mean, and it, and I, I watched her when he I was upset about something laying on her chest for 40 minutes, going through a book and and you can just you can sit and you can actually see it um, that whole interaction between the mother and baby and the calmness and mm-hmm. uh, what do you talk about like right brain that importance of the mm-hmm. right brain developing so uh, you're so right and it it isn't politically correct I know it isn't it, it certainly wasn't when I was raising my kids and I, I always feel like I felt guilty for staying home I felt guilty when I went to work uh, so but are you sort of a standalone um, professional right now in terms of, well, uh, sort of advocating for
3: this stay-at-home mom? You know, I, I hope not. Um, I hope <laughs> that other, you know, I have colleagues who believe what I believe. And, and again, it is it's an interesting idea. It's not a book necessarily about working versus not working. I recommend that women stay home as long as possible and longer if possible. <laughs> so, and as you say, we have no societal support for this. We have no maternity leave policy at all. We don't even have three months. I mean, uh, what the president's daughter is working on is just six weeks of paid maternity leave, and that's not even gone through. So we have something called the Family Leave Act, which provides uh, that someone's job may be held for them for a certain number of weeks, but at no pay. So we have, we're the only civilized country in the world that doesn't really respect the relationship and understand the, the importance of the relationship between mothers and babies. Um, and it's really, it's, it's at a crisis point. Um, so it really isn't, a, it's, I should say it's not a book about working versus not working. It's about if you're going to do work in the first three years, you still want to be able to prioritize, and we picked that word so carefully, to prioritize your children over everything else. Um, And can I say you brought an interesting point in that no one in any of the interviews that I've done so far has pointed out, (laughs) which is such an interesting point. Well, Go go ahead. (laughs) the, The pace of a baby is so much slower meaning the pace of raising a baby is at a slower pace than the pace outside. So when you have to go into the outside world, the pace is much faster. And so when you have to rush off to work or rush off to the outside world when you're raising a very young baby, you're bringing the stress of that outside world to that baby's world, which is a very safe, quiet, and and should I say slow world. Um, and so, yeah, does it make an argument for taking off as long as possible and then integrating your work in a way, if you can, um, that still allows you to prioritize your, your child over everything else?
2: And being present, I think, that's one that you emphasize, obviously. I mean, that's that I don't see, ev- and I think maybe this sort of ties in with what you just said. I mean, even mothers who let's say are staying home or you watch them wheeling their babies in their carriages they're not present necessarily they're they're the, they're they're with the baby or the or the toddler but they are on their cell phones or they are on their iPads uh or yeah. they are not really engaged or present with the baby and I think that's another it's not just being there it's being present
3: Yeah, it is. It's not just being there physically. You can be there physically. You can be a stay-at-home mom who's there physically and be checked out emotionally. Um, So, you know, the old argument about quality versus quantity time, I always say there is no such thing as quality time with children unless you're there a quantity of the time. Um, You know, in the same way, if you're there physically and you're not there emotionally, you're not really there. And you're right. You know, the world is now a world filled with distraction and, you know, Functioning at a very fast pace in life and non non reflection, people aren't really that reflective or self aware. So we've become a society that is very um, it, is not emotionally present. So yes, you do see that. And you know, I'm I'm here in New York. I, I say in the book that I see so many strollers being pushed, babies faced out at too young an age. Where The mother isn't actually even interacting with the baby. The mother's on her cell phone or the nanny's on her cell phone. Or, for me, when I see mothers feeding babies, faced out, putting the bottles in their mouths, um, with the baby facing out, so it 's a sign of our times um, that we really don 't know how to connect with our babies, so hopefully this book provides so much information for working and non working mothers about how to connect with their babies and be as emotionally present as possible when they 're physically present yeah
2: and let 's talk about some of the specifics in the book because I think that 's really important so how yeah. do they do you know how do they do this and let 's say and you also address this if they can 't do it, how to teach uh, the person who is caring for the baby to do uh, to, to do it to minimize stress for the baby or, or the toddler.
3: Yeah, well, there's two questions in there. Let's see if I can um, answer the first one. and still remember the second, because the second is a good <laughs> okay. one, too. The second is about child care and how do you pick, you know, how do you teach a child, someone who's caring for your child, to care for your child? But the first one is just some things that, you know, obviously the book is full of things, but I can just throw out a few that that people can learn from the book. One is um, the idea of when you are feeding your baby, you're not actually just providing them with sustenance of food. You're actually, the most important part of breastfeeding and if you can't you know, we always say breast is best, but, you know, or bottle feeding, is that you're making eye contact, that you're skin-to-skin with that baby. You know, I say it's even more important for someone who's not breastfeeding to take off their shirt and have the baby skin-to-skin with them as they're bottle feeding. Um, So that eye contact, that touch, that full attention, where your phone is nowhere in the room when you're feeding that baby, and you're really just is we say mindful. Mindfulness is being in the moment with that baby, being interested in that baby to the extent that nothing and no one is more interesting than that baby in that moment. Um, That's what the feeding experience should be like every time you feed a baby. The other thing is, um, another, you know, just a couple things is, one of the ways that we diagnose um, postpartum depression are right side cradlers, because when we cradle on the left side, the baby's right brain is connecting with our right brain. So, you know, you'll see very nurturing mothers cradle on the left side. Now, obviously, when you breastfeed, you have to alternate. So, you, but, but in terms of just cradling, holding the baby, um, mothers who have Very functional right brains themselves will cradle on the left side. So what I say is if you find yourself cradling on the right side, try cradling on the left side. It actually will increase the connection to your baby, making eye contact with your baby on the left side. Um, Another thing is just putting your distractions like phones and tablets and computers at the door, And leaving them there when you come back from wherever you're coming back from until your baby is asleep. So there's lots of stuff. I mean, that's just a few of the ways that you can really be present for your baby.
2: Well, the the cradling on the left side, and I didn't know this, obviously, until uh, reading your book and you're discussing it on the show. But I nursed all my three babies, and the last one only wanted to breastfeed on the left side, and he was yeah. a pretty big boy. I, I finally gave up. I didn't even do the right breast, and if you can imagine what I looked like. But he was
3: happy, and <laughs> it all ended well. But uh, yeah. that was definitely his choice. Yep. Yeah. Well, because he could feel something coming from the left side, and I did the same. So I had very uneven breasts too. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on radio, but okay. Um, all right. But, but uh, the idea is that yes, it's um, he could feel something in the connection to you on the left side. Right now,
2: okay, the second question, I guess, is, oh no, if you can't do it, if one, you're going to be training, um, the nanny or the babysitter, or even, I guess, if you take them to a daycare, what do you do? How do you, how, how do you train someone else to relieve as much stress as they can, um, when, whether it's a baby or a toddler?
3: So, you know, again, I want to repeat that, you know, there are a lot of mothers who have to work. So the book doesn't say if you work, your baby is ruined, Um, but it says more is more. The more emotionally and physically available you can be, whether you work or not, the better off your baby will be. So when you can't be there, and, you know, to say that we have had support um, throughout history as women raising children, that we've never raised children so much in isolation as we do now, Um, that there's a premium in our society on independence and doing it yourself and self-determination. And as a result, we don't lean on the people that we need to lean on anymore. We live far away from our families geographically. We don't have mothers and grandmothers and aunts who are helping us like we did? Um, you know, in the old days, we would live in a big house with all our relatives, and everybody would help us. So, so women are more isolated than ever before. And what are we doing now? We have to hire our support system. Okay, which is perfectly fine. The best is um, if you have family who are interested in helping you and supporting you to care for your child. I always say kinship bonds are the best. Um, we've lost them to a certain extent, but they're the best because your, the, your mother, your grandmother, your aunt, they have a similar investment in that baby to you. Um, when you hire someone, they can love your baby, but their investment isn't going to be the same because they know they're going to have to leave at some point. Right? There's separation even at the end of every day. Um, but the next best after kinship would be to hire somebody and to choose somebody who is loving and nurturing and empathic because that's what we know to grow the right brain is empathy, sensitivity, um, leaning into a child's pain rather than shutting it down, um, strict is not something I tell people to look for in a, in a nanny. I tell them to look for warm, nurturing, loving, empathic. Um, give up the organization. Give up the strictness. Give up the, the competency that we look for in modern society and look for the nurturing. Um, if you can't, So I'm going to go down the line. If you can't afford that, then share one with another family. This became a huge thing, Catherine, in California. Um, people sharing a single surrogate caregiver between two families because they couldn't afford to have their own. That's a better option because the ratio of caregiver to child is still going to be something like two to one or three to one. If you go to a daycare, you're never going to find, I mean, Three to one is an impossible ratio in a daycare, and I want any mother who's listening to think about what it would be like for them to care for more than three infants and toddlers at the same time and then tell me that they're going to be able to provide sensitive and empathic nurturing to more than three children at once. So the ratios in daycare are too high. The environments are too overstimulating to a a newborn or young child. Um, You know, you're taking a child who some people believe is born without a central nervous system. Babies under nine months old, they say when a baby is born, a baby is born nine months too early. And mothers are the nervous system for the baby in the first nine months. So you take that baby without a central nervous system, metaphorically, and you put them in an overstimulating group environment with lots of caregivers and no consistency. Many of them are not well-trained. And the baby is completely under stress.
2: That's a good point because I think that's one of the very often mothers, uh, not, not excuses, but they'll say, well, I put my child in daycare because they're going to have so much stimulation and it's much better for them rather, or the babies, toddlers, uh, than staying at home and, and being, quote, bored by being taken care of, let's say, by one person. So it's they, they sort of view that stimulation as oh, that's going to be great. They're going to learn more, but that's not true.
3: No, no. Again, think about mothers. I I use lots of metaphors, but think about mothers as the emotional skin for babies, that they provide babies with protection against the stimulus. So you actually don't want that kind of excessive stimulus for a newborn baby or even a baby within the first year. Um, And I say even up to three years. You really want to... Be able to control the stress for that baby in that environment and you cannot control the stress in a in a in a group environment with lots of noise and lots of people and transient caregivers and lots of caregivers it's just not possible you can't control the stress for that baby
2: so can we fast? we don't have that much time left so Erica can we fast forward what happens to those babies because we now we've had a lot of experience of these babies being in daycare over the past let's say 30 years and they've grown into teenagers and young adults. Can we relate negative kinds of behavior to the way to having had those kinds of experiences?
3: Well, there's a number of studies that show that there's increased aggression uh, in children who are put in daycare too young and for too many hours a week. Um, and the reason for that is again, if I use my analogy of the mother as being the buffer to stress or the mother as being the emotional skin. Um when that baby is under stress, and think I want you to think of the fight or flight reaction, when you're under stress, when you're frightened, um, you can often become aggressive. And so what we're seeing is very aggressive children at a very young age when they get to preschool and the school years, because It's protection for them. You know, so I'm always redefining for mothers when they come in and their child has been, you know, um, observed by the school to be very aggressive. I say, well, your child is feeling unprotected. Your child is feeling frightened. That's a defensive human response to fear. Um, so, aggression is one of the things that we see. The other thing is focus and attentional issues, so what we call hyper vigilance in the face of fear they become very hyperactive um, in the face of fear. These are all fight or flight responses to stress
2: erica we 're going to we only have a couple minutes left, so I want to obviously want uh, this is a, a must read but and a must read and we didn 't say this in the beginning, but not just for mothers but for fathers and and for all caregivers, um, being there, why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters. Um, and I've been talking to Erica, Commissar, LCSW, psychoanalyst. Um, give us a website that we can go to. I know you can buy the book on Amazon bookstores everywhere, but um, if it's
3: there are. It's com. K-O-M-I-S-A-R.
2: Great book. Um, thanks so much for being on the show today.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Yep, great to have you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
0: internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com.
1: are you or someone you know interested in attending college with both college tuition and college enrollment up 60 percent since 2002 there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process tune in to getting in a college coach conversation hosted by elizabeth heaton
0: Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Chris Versace. His new book is uh, Cocktail Investing, Distilling Everyday Noise into Clear Investment Signals for Better Returns. Uh, He's a financial columnist and as well as an author of this book, an equity analyst with more than 20 years of experience in the investment industry. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Chris. Well,
4: thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Well, give us the information. I <laughs> uh, I really did <laughs> identify with a lot of the stuff you say in the book. I mean, to me, uh, you know, when I listen to this financial advisor, or I've had lots of them, but I never quite always understand what they're saying. It just sounds like a lot of, I don't know what you call it, not kind of blabber stuff that doesn't make sense to me, and uh, I think that I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people feel that way. So your book is for, like, tell us what we should be doing, how we should be doing, what's cocktail investing?
4: Well, I I think you're referring to that. um, I think the the technical term is uh, financial gobbledygook, Uh, you know, and the industry, unfortunately, is uh, trapped in a world of language kind of its own with a lot of acronyms and, and things like that. So for someone who is you know just getting their toes wet it, it, can, it can be very daunting and, and you know if you look at the financial media um, cable channels or even some of the uh, more popular um, investing shows I mean it's there's a lot of uh, over-the-topness and you know almost frenetic activity and, and the reality is as an investor you know it really pays to be calm cool and collected um, to really understand, you know, whether it's a mutual fund, an exchange-traded fund, or you're buying shares of uh, individual um, stock of a particular company, whether it's you know, name it—Apple, Nike, Under Armour, what have you—you know—the first thing you need to do is really understand what is it you're buying, right? Because you're buying shares in the business, so you need to understand the business, and that means you have to understand um, what's driving it what some of the competitive factors are. So w- when I teach my students, what I always say to them on the first stock assignment that we do is pick a company or an industry that you really, really love. And more often than not, my students will flock to uh, Nike, Under Armour, uh, sometimes Apple, sometimes Google, uh, and increasingly Tesla, although I doubt any of them have a Tesla. But um, and, and I say this to them because, one, if you're interested in it, you're going to thrive and consume a lot of information. You know, have a good understanding of what's going on, just generally speaking for the business. Then we can work on understanding the financials and then valuing the stock. So to me, that's always the first thing that has to happen, um, is really immersing yourself in in the particular area you want to focus in on.
2: Uh, That's your students. Okay, so they pick one company you said like nike or tesla one of those yeah but okay so what about what about me what about a social worker uh, not a student
4: uh oh well i mean well, a lot of it yeah. then depends on really understanding kind of what your personal um balance sheet looks like what your you know if we were to use the financial terms what your income statement looks like right so you know how, how much debt do you have how much cash do you have on hand Right, and what's your monthly or quarterly uh, cash flow look like? Right, so what's your income look like? You know, week well, every two weeks if you get paid like that. What are your expenses? Everything from what's your rent for mortgage payment? What are your credit cards? What do you spend on food, car payment? You know, all the way down the line, and we do this to determine how much what we call disposable income you have, and that is what simply put, disposable income is, kind of your fun money or money after you pay all your bills. Right. So, whether you want to save for retirement, invest for buying a home, uh, you know, accruing money for that uh, 20% mortgage down payment, or something else. Maybe you want to buy a new car, whatever. Once you've taken care of all your bills, that's the money you have to work with. And it's that money that you can start to invest with. Um, But here's the thing. You know, you don't simply go, okay, I have X amount of dollars. Let me get started today the first thing you want to do is make sure that you have what they call a, an emergency fund. And you would be surprised that about a third of Americans can't scrape a thousand dollars together. And for some people I I realize a thousand dollars is, you know, it's a lot of money, but you know, the rule of thumb is until you have six months of expenses saved, don't start investing in the stock market or in mutual funds or ETFs, because remember these are not guaranteed to go higher. They can be volatile. And from time to time, as we've seen, you know, they those prices, those securities will pull back in value. So you, you need to make sure that you've got what we call, excuse me, what we call a um, a safety net so that you're not you know selling these things to cover your bills. That's that's a huge, huge mistake.
2: Right. So you're saying a that's third that's of the people started. don't have that. And it's a 6 case. Right. I mean, I mean case. There,
4: there are you know there are, are more statistics out there for the sorry state of uh, Americans when it comes to either saving for retirement or saving in general. I mean, here, here here's a fantastic one that'll that'll probably scare you. Um, this year, the first baby boomers are um, turning seventy. Okay, and out of that, I think mm-hmm. in total, some I forget the exact numbers, but over the next ten years, we're going to see a huge shift. In uh, in that as they all turn 70, which means from an economic perspective, we're gonna see a downshift in their spending that'll weigh on the speed of the economy. But having said that, um, something like 25% of them lack retirement savings. And you think about that and you say, okay, so we've got the social security out there. There's a lot of questions over it. We've got a, a budget that is you know, over $19 trillion, but we have all these people that are reliant on the Social Security and other entitlement programs. that That's a huge pain point for the economy.
2: Okay, the question is, so what are we going to do about that? I mean, well, that's the problem, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, <that's, laughs> right, but what's the answer? Yeah.
4: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I, I think that's why you kind of, I mean, there there are a couple things, um, and in my opinion. You know, one is, I think in the short term, they're they're going to have to find some life support for Social Security to keep these, keep these people going. But I also think we, have, we need to overhaul that longer term. I mean, Social Security is never meant to be a lifestyle the same way the minimum wage was never meant to be a lifestyle, um, that sort of thing. And I, you know, I, what I would like to see is um, privatization of retirement accounts so that can move with you, uh, that sort of thing, as well as uh, maybe some more favorable tax uh, treatment for people who save for retirement. So it's more of a stick than a carrot. Uh, sorry, more of a carrot than a stick. In my experience, that always works rather well. Um, but there there needs to be some structural reforms. You know, the re- reality is when we've got, um, you know, 45, 46 percent of the population working, the flip side of that means, you know, more than half are not working. That's kind of an upside down pyramid. And you can't, there aren't enough people to pay in to support uh, more people not paying in. Um, so it, it is a long term structural problem that has to be addressed.
2: Okay. Well, that's the baby boomers, and, and that sounds very depressing. But well, what about that, that, that's
4: the baby boomers? That's the millennials. I mean, you know, you know, we we unfortunately we we continue to hear about millennials. Um, you know, not necessarily um, a saving. B, you know, tough time to get a job. They're swallowed with student debt. They may not be able to, you know, themselves uh, start you know saving for their retirement until they're much later in life. You know, I was talking with some of my some of my students at New Jersey City University, and they were saying that. Some of the debt that they've had to take on, you know, these people are 25, 26-year-olds or even a little later for graduate students, and they're saying, look, I'm going to be carrying this student debt into my 40s.
2: That's, I mean, you know, you read, I've read all kinds of things about how what, and I guess we don't have a solution for that either. Uh, so that's obviously not something that's positive, but let's, can we get back a little bit to what you were talking yeah, about sure. before? Sorry. Sorry. So now, yeah, yeah. especially with the millennials. So now they have an opportunity though, uh, to not just accrue debt, but to make some wise choices uh, about, you know, saving money and investing money, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there's yep. just Absolutely. starting out. Um, But one of the questions that I have about that is like, and I think you mentioned this, like, okay, so you know what companies you're interested in, you study them, Mm -hmm. you know, you do your due diligence, those kinds of things. But what about, and you describe it as the deluge of information. So, okay, (laughs) I I have a pretty good idea of where I'd like to go, but how do I filter out all this stuff that I get? You know, that's my question.
4: Sure, sure. And, that, and that, that is a great question. And th- thanks for getting us back on a, on a proactive uh, path here. I <laughs> apologize for yep. distracting us a little bit. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, I mean, if you were to pick up, you know, the paper and again, look at the, you know, cable, uh, TV news, what have you, there's going to be so many terms that are thrown around. Oil, gold, inflation, the dollar, the yen, uh, earnings. Uh, what is this company saying? You know, uh, what is the Fed saying? You know, all, all of these things. And, and while we need to have a good... You know, high-level view of where the economy is going. Um, the reality is that you need to drill down and understand the companies that you're investing in. And there's a lot of resources out there. Uh, companies themselves they have their own uh, annual reports. They have a lot of financial filings with the SEC that are for free. SEC.gov, and you can look up, look them up from the 10Ks to 10Qs. And, and what you want to do, and, and you know. What you want to do is really follow the 12 questions that we outline in the book. And it's in a section, you know, the 12 questions you have to answer before you buy any stock. And the gist of them is you need to understand what is it the company really does. Okay, what is going to move the needle on their business? And I'll give you a great example. Um, last night I was watching some television and I saw a, a very, very slick commercial for the, for the Apple Watch. Right. But if you do your homework, you do your digging on Apple, you realize that, you know, 70% of Apple's business is tied to the iPhone, okay? Yeah, they have the Apple Watch, they have some computers, they have iPads and some other services, but what is going to be the biggest influence on their revenues and their profits? iPhone sales. So we can talk all about those other things, but they're not really going to move the needle in a dramatic fashion, so that that's a great example of really understanding what is driving the business, and then the question you have to is have to ask is well, what's the health of what's driving the business? And if we look at Apple here and now, you know, we're we're trapped between the annual uh, refresh cycle of the iPhone. There's a lot of anticipation about the 10th anniversary device that will be out, you know, in the back half of the year, probably September. And what that means between now and then is we're in limbo. No one's going to buy a device ahead of this you know ten year anniversary that's going to have a brand new design new display and all these other things so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about when you get to roll up your sleeves and understand what drives the business um, and some other companies are a little are a little more a little different you know General Electric is a company for example everybody knows GE lighting that's in transition as they sh- shed their financial business and become more of an industrial and lighting company play so Something you have to monitor. Um, the trick here is don't get lost in the minutia and all the hype and all the noise. Focus on what moves the needle.
2: So you just can't listen to, as you say, you're watching the the uh, news or you're watching television. Don't get hooked into the commercials. Don't get into hooked into the glitz. You really do have to study the companies. You mentioned Tesla. Talk to us about that company.
4: Yeah, I mean, Tesla's an interesting story. I mean, you know, it's from the way we look at the world um, at my company, Tomatica Group, and we talk about in the book, Cocktail Investing, you know, we look for these pronounced tailwinds. And, you know, one of the ones that we have is this disruptive technology that is electric cars. And and Tesla is really capitalizing on that. They're the only pure play electric car company. Uh, Are we seeing other companies, GM, Ford, Volkswagen, and the like, Try and bring um, electric cars or hybrid cars to market. Sure, we are, and it's going to be a more competitive playing field. That's my long-term concern with Tesla. That as other cars come in at more affordable prices, that you know the competitive landscape is going to tighten against Tesla. Um, but Tesla is also merging uh, with some of other Elon Musk's companies, and including Solar City. And it, it really, in my opinion, it really begs the question as to where are they going? What, what kind of company are they actually going to be compared to what they are today? And you have to remember, too, that it is a company that has really, really benefited from government contracts, um, some of which may not be around. And in my view, that kind of forces the company to show real commercial profits sooner than later. So to me, that's not, not, you know, the, compared to um, Apple, where I can see a clear catalyst coming in a couple of months, Tesla is an area of a little more concern for me.
2: Okay, so cautious, I guess. Yes. Uh, be, yeah, be cautious. What do you say about, I mean, things move so quickly. I think Thomas Friedman's new book, uh, and I can't remember the title right now, uh, I just bought it, he, talking about how everything moves so quickly uh, in terms of, uh, you know, um, our whole world, uh, globalization, oh, technology. and absolutely. absolutely. And, and, yeah, and that affects know, it, everything it, that it, you're it, talking. Yeah, go ahead.
4: Yeah, it, it absolutely does. I'm just sorry to cut you off, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's interesting. So if we were to think of Warren Buffett, arguably one of, if not the greatest investor of all time, what, what does he spend most of his time doing during the day? Reading. He's not, you know, transfixed by cable news, Twitter, Facebook, all these, um, sorry for this expression, but a lot of these things that kind of, that are time sucks, Right. Where yeah. it's always I got to respond. Oh, so and so just said this. Oh, I got to do this. I got to, and what happens is you get so caught up, you get spun up, that you don't have the time or the inclination to what does this mean, how is this affecting things, and start asking those questions and really thinking things through. That's what Buffett does, and I think that's you know he he has a luxury that he you know is obviously in a position in life to do that. Not everybody can, but you almost need to slow things down a little bit, so again, you can really understand what's going on. What is it important? Why is it important? What does it mean? For the reason why I bought this mutual fund, I bought this exchange traded fund, I bought this stock. You know what have you?
2: So, uh, were you talking about? Would you say time suck? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 it's easy I, to get I, I, into I'm that. Sure but... You've
4: been either on. Well, I'm sure you've been on Facebook, right? Where you you sit yeah. down for a minute and you're
2: like, and you're like, "Oh my god, thirty minutes just went by." <laughs> or uh, you're on. A, it's always like, "I do I have enough information?" Then I look at something, or you, you're talking about Facebook or Twitter, whatever you. It's sort of like, "Oh, I, I think I." There is that sort of that uh, impetus, like I, I need to act now, or I'm going to miss out, or if I don't do it now, something terrible is going to happen. So I better, I better react, or I'm going to, you know, so. It's it's that kind of a mentality, which is kind of which is really a 180 from Warren Buffett. And I think most people generally fall into the category that I'm talking about, like being afraid you're going to miss out on something unless you act or react right away.
4: Yeah, you know, it's it's always interesting. Um, you know, there is that fear and I, I can understand it. Um But when when it comes to investing, you know, there's uh, there are so many individual stocks out there, so many ETFs, and that's a market that just keeps growing, and so many mutual funds. But there there's you know there's always ways to um, to play it, as we like to say. Um, You know, to me, uh, it kind of defaults back to this notion, right? If you were a carpenter and you were building a wall or you were putting a floor down, you know, you're going to measure things twice, if not three times, to make sure you have it right. And then you're going to, you know, cut the wood or nail it in place or, you know, whatever the activity is. Because if you mess up, it's very costly, very, you know, not only costly, but very much a a huge time issue to undo the damage that has been done. And I I think that's one of the things that we go on and on about this in the book. You know, a lot of people, when they get wound up, kind of like we're talking about, uh, I need to act. They're they're always thinking of, wow, if everything goes right. First off, not everything goes right all the time. Secondly, in order to really, really uh, have a balance to view and understand what you're doing, you have to look at not only the upside to be had in an investment, but you need to understand the downside risk. So as I say to people, if I said to you that this stock is trading at $10, I think it's going to go to 13, you might say, wow that's 30% upside, that's pretty good. Boy, I'd, I'd like some of that. And then I say, yes, it's a 10 and it may go to 13, but there's an equal chance that it can fall to seven. And then you see the look you know, totally change on their face. Whoa, that's the upside and the downside, whoa, that's almost equal, and I go, yes. That's why, you know, and we again, we hammer this home in the book. You need to understand the potential upside as well as the potential downside. And then when you have something where the upside is greater than the downside, and that's where you want to strike, move, buy, you know, whatever whatever language you want to use, there are times when the potential downside is far greater. And that's something you want to avoid. And, you know, for example, if we look at retail right now, whether it's Macy's, JCPenney, um, BB stores, pay less; um, they're all feeling the pain of what we call the death at the mall um, at the shift towards uh, digital commerce, um, you know, Amazon or, and others. But all those brick-and-mortar retailers are having a very tough time so that, that, you know, they clearly have more risk, even though the stock prices might be cheap, than potential reward at least near term. So that would be an area that we kind of, you know, steer way away from again assessing the potential risk as well as the reward
2: all right now let's talk about and you talk about this this uncertain future i mean we have a new president a new government Mm -hmm. i guess uh what how does that fit into our uncertain future and in terms of investing
4: so the so the the I, the wider question I think you're asking is yes we we have a new government and we're you know waiting to see exactly what the Trump policies are in in terms of details whether it's you know as we saw uh, recently with the with the effort that didn't happen with repeal and replace uh, Obamacare which I still think needs to be repealed and replaced uh, from infrastructure spending and how it's going to be spent how it's going to be paid for tax overhaul what would the rates be. What's going to happen with uh, cash repatriation? What's going to happen? Um, Will we have a border tax, not have a border tax? You know, all all these questions. And then there's other things uh, outside the U.S., uh, uncertainty in terms of political stability. I mean, you look what happened on Friday with Syria. You look what happened over the weekend with North Korea. And whenever you see uncertainty, okay, whether it's we're uncertain about what a policy might be, we're uncertain as to if the Fed may, may raise interest rates. A lot of this uncertainty causes the market to be very cautious and at times um, volatile. And volatile is a you know one of those terms that we think of p- volatile people where they, they're hot, they're cold, they're angry, they're, they're, um, they're fun to be around. The market is volatile, too, in that it, it can react based on news. And, and the bouncier it gets, odds are there's a lot more uncertainty going on in the market. So um, if I was to say, you know, in a perfect world, the the market is kind of like going to the airport, it's a sunny day, it's clear, it's bright, you know, the pilot can see all the way down the runway and it's just a clear, clear shot. Um, If on the other hand, there's a lot of clouds, it's raining and, you know, you're taking off and you're bouncing around, that uncertainty of I can't see exactly where we're going, that's the way the market is.
2: All right. Given that, I mean, that that is the way the market is. Uh, what do you like? What should we, What do you suggest we do? How,
4: it- OK, so if, if the question is today, <laughs> Wednesday, uh, what's happening? Yeah. What do you think is going to happen over the next couple of weeks? And what should we do? And my, my answer to that would be we are heading into the busiest a couple weeks, known as corporate earnings. That's when companies not only report their earnings for the recently closed first quarter, but they're going to update their outlook um, for the current quarter that goes through June, maybe for the rest of 2017. And one of the issues that I've been writing about, you know, uh, significantly, as well as my uh, partner and co-author of the book, uh, Lenore Hawkins, is, you know, whenever we see a new president come in, we see what we call the soft data, the the, the sentiment indices, consumer confidence, all those numbers get very, very strong, okay? And we saw it again with, with when, when Trump became president, you know? Uh, but if we were have we been watching the hard data, that's the manufacturing uh, orders, production, backlog, retail sales, uh, durable orders, um, you know, all, all of those things that really help us get a beat on the true speed of the economy, Really, since January, they've been continuing to slow. And, and the GDP expectation in January for the current quarter was about three percent, and it currently sits at around oh point nine percent. That's a huge uh, drop. You know, a, a bad what we call vector velocity. And my concern is, uh, as three hundred companies report earnings this week, six hundred next week, and nine hundred the week after. These companies are going to look at you know the push out in uh, timing for Trump's policies, the slowing of the economy, and they're gonna say, huh. Um, you know, we had a very, very upbeat forecast for 2017, oh, three months ago, but the speed of the economy is not what we thought it was gonna be. There's some uncertainty out there. So we're gonna be cautious. And my concern is as that happens over the next three weeks in particular. We're likely to see the market, you know, continue what we've seen in March and thus far in April, which is kind of, you know, it's like a balloon with a slow leak. We're slowly giving back those big gains from November, December, January, and February. So for people who are just unfortunately,
2: new to the game, we Chris, I, we have to say uh, I have to interrupt you because uh, we have to we have one minute left. Uh, oh, okay. So, so I want to make sure so that everybody, is. yeah. Buy the book, Cocktail yeah. Investing, Distilling Everyday Noise into Clear Investment Signals for Better Returns. Great book. Chris Versace, lots of information. I mean, you gave us a lot of information on the show today, but there is a lot more to read in the book. So, uh, And just website we can go to. Uh,
4: yeah, the best one would be Tematica Research, T-E-M-A-T-I-C-A research.com. Yeah, or they can follow me on Twitter at underscore Chris Versace.
2: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great information. Uh, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with
0: Catherine Zox.